He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be filled like, full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new young, new wine the young women. What's the word of the Lord? Thank you, George. We've uh, taken up this little series for three weeks, this series from the book of Zechariah, and asked last week how many people have read the book of Zechariah. And, uh, you know, there's that terrible secret that most people who even go to church don't read their Bibles regularly or enough. Or um, And Zechariah is one of those lost books for very many people. Uh, even, even those of us who've read through the Bible a number of times, it's not necessarily a book that you remember. But it's a beautiful book. It's a book filled with visions, pictures given by God to a man who is in a place uh, of a relative, um, not despair, but, but darkness, almost despair. It could be despair without the visions. And it has a lot to say to us today and a lot to say historically. So we'll conclude today. We're not doing the whole of the book, and you can see we, we, we read a scripture reading, but then I'm going to go back to chapter 7 and chapter 8 and into chapter 9 today and refer to chapter 13 as well um, and give you a sense of what this book is about. We called this book a life-giving tour through the wasteland because how the book is constructed is that Zechariah, the word of the Lord, comes to Zechariah, this person who's living in exile with the people of God, cut off from the land of promise, and they've been in that place of exile for decades, which should be kind of encouraging to you as a Christian and maybe a little uh, disheartening as well because it seems that God is a lot more patient than we are. And so I don't know how long you're counting for things to maybe turn around for you or you think, you know, this thing could change in my life. And these people, this was 70 years. And uh, they didn't live as long then as we do now. So some people live the entirety of their lives in a place cut off from the, f- the fullness of the promise that God had for them. But God hadn't abandoned his people. It reminds you that anything worth doing can't be accomplished in a single lifetime. You know that, right? Like really, really worth doing. And therefore, part of our salvation is hope. 
that there's something bigger than us. And it takes the pressure off you a little bit as well. So things had been difficult for these people. It was a bit of a wasteland. But Zechariah is given a life-giving tour through the wasteland by an angel. It's literally how it happens. An angel who acts as a tour guide, but the tour is through the place of exile, and, and the stops along the tour are visions. Eight key visions in the book, but depending on how you divide it up, maybe more. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, and the visions will be visions of rebuilding and life, life beyond the best of expectations, because they had come to know life in that exile kind of way. And God, through Zechariah, was going to show them that you have no idea the goodness and blessing that I have in store for you and those who follow you. Last week in chapters 2, 3, and 4, we looked first at a city that would be rebuilt, a vision of a new city, Jerusalem. And Zechariah gets excited about seeing a man with a measuring tape which um, Murray Williams was here last week, and he seemed to really get excited about measuring tapes as well in his life. Uh, me, not so much, though I like, you know, when I guess when people build things for us. But um, And Zechariah saw a man with a measuring tape and said, what's that? And then another angel showed up and talked to the first angel. Oh, Murray's still here, still excited about measuring tapes. Um, and, and, and talked to the first angel, what's going on? And he said, I'm, I'm measuring out the dimensions for the new city. But as the vision continues, what happens is Zechariah realizes that the promise is not just that he'll be living in a new place, which would be very promising, and many people living in the Vancouver area can identify with how difficult it might be to find a place to live that you love. But the promise to Zechariah is not just that you'll, you, you and your people will be living in a new place, a restored city, but God's ultimate blessing is that I will dwell with you there which is the blessing you should be after as well, not just the new context for situation in your life. Zechariah says, I lifted up my eyes. And, and the second vision in chapter 3, the second one we looked at last week, is a vision of a high priest, the high priest Joshua, and beside him is, is Satan, devil, evil. And God renews the worship of the land as well. The high priest had filthy garments on, it says, And not only did God rebuke Satan, who was accusing the high priest and the people, and worship had become kind of anemic and not very vital and seemingly useless in the land. God rebukes Satan, the accuser, and then the angel says, put pure vestments onto the high priest. And then the end of that chapter, you have this beautiful picture where as worship is renewed, the blessing is not just for the worshiping community, But the blessing is for everyone because the text says at the end of chapter 3, it says, and here's what will happen as worship is renewed. You will invite your neighbors over to sit under your vine and under your fig tree. This is evangelism, how the blessing pours out to other people. The last vision we looked at last week in chapter 4 is a relatively famous one, though not super easy to understand. You might have to use uh, Bible study guides to unpack it. But it is a vision that uh, Zechariah has of lamps, oil lamps, like with with oil in them that burn. No electricity in those days. And, of course, there are these, these golden lamps, and then he sees olive trees beside the golden lamps, and the olive trees have perfect golden oil that consistently and constantly fuel the lamps. It's a blessing of extravagance, a blessing of enough. You won't be without 
And it's in that chapter that you have the, the famous lines that we need to remember still. That God says this rebuilding, this renewal, this salvation will happen not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. And if you are at all attuned to the Holy Spirit of God, when you hear words like that, it's not by might, it's not by your personal achievement, it's not by power, it's not by you having to have victory over anyone else, but it's by my Spirit. It's like this beautiful relief. The reminder that God is with you. Today, chapter 7, 8, and 9, as I said, not the whole of the book, but I'm get, getting you at least to the center of the book. And this is the coming king or the king of glory. And I'll get you there, I think, I hope, I intend, to, for you to see life in Christ even in this Old Testament uh, prophecy and to see your place and what your response might be. But we start in chapter 7 where God asks a question. Now, this should be a little bit uh, disconcerting to you. And, you know... Probably well-meaning, but kind of mean religious people through the centuries. Whenever they say God asks a question, you better look out. So I'm just going to say to you this morning, and you can put your name in here. So, so so-and-so, your name, God is about to ask you a question. Does that make you feel great? Or scared? Or small? Or humble? Or sinful? You have to remember that we understand the fullness of God as present in Jesus Christ, his character. There's not Jesus and then other stuff. You know what I mean? You don't take what you know of Jesus Christ in Scripture and then what you know of something else from Scripture and kind of say, well, God's like this in Jesus, but over here he's like this. No, his fullness is in Jesus Christ. This will describe to you what the rest of that means. Very valuable. But still, if God asks you a question because you've grown up in through, like we've grown up through history and the centuries that have come before us, where God's a pretty imposing figure, right? Like God shows up and you get upset. And it's not the wrong response, this healthy, reverent fear of God. Um, We were in Prague recently, uh, Jennifer and I, and uh, it's just so busy. Don't don't bother going. There's enough people there already. But it's wonderful. Um, But the churches are depressing. Not just because they're empty, which is interesting, but more so in Prague and some of these places because they are so imposing that they're terrifying. They look, I mean, obviously Disney has modeled some of their castles and statues and churches on these because everything about these big churches pronounces you are nothing. And that's the old way of thinking that God asks you a question, you little. But God asks a question here, a religious question, we could say, because it's of God in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1, the actual time and date is given when the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And the context is that people were inquiring of God. People, Zechariah's people, were still meeting for services and to pray and to fast even. And they were still um, trying to seek God's direction in some kind of way. But it was really a little bit more of empty religious observance. And God, into that context, asks a question. Here's the question. It's wonderful. Chapter 7, mostly verses 5 and 6. I'll paraphrase it a little bit. He says to the people, you know, when you're meeting all the time and you're getting together and you're singing and you're fasting even, I mean, these people were a little bit more committed than us because they actually fasted, refrained from eating. 
Um, you're getting together, you're singing, you're fasting, you're marking um, the time of the exile. So some of these meetings were basically the, the leaders came and said, okay, we're going to get prepared to have our remembrance meeting of when we used to live in the promised land. And we're going to kind of... And so God says into that, you know when you're doing all those meetings? Here's the question. Is that for me? Isn't that a great question? Are you meeting for me? In verse 8, you get to a reminder that God is more interested in people than he is in religion, which thankfully was true then and is obviously still true now, though it's sometimes you've got to remind people like me and others and uh, church people that God is more interested in people than religion. Because it's easy to get more interested in religion than people and think that people are supposed to serve religion, right? Because God's question, were you meeting for me? The next thing he says is because there were all kinds of people in need around you. And he didn't seem to be doing much for them. In fact, he says, it's like those who came before you, other generations before you, the ones that I judged, the reason that you're out here in exile. They didn't pay attention to me. And then this beautiful um, phrase in the ESV. The ESV is one of the more accurate translations of Scripture. And it doesn't always translate the metaphors and the sayings and the pictures really well into English because they, you know, they try to keep it a little more accurate to the original language. And this is one of those places because it's not necessarily a, a, a description that we would use, but it works because it's a bit clunky. Verse 11 God says, they turned a stubborn shoulder to me. Of chapter 7, verse 11. They turned a stubborn shoulder. And it's, it's not just that they turned a stubborn shoulder to God. Of course, what they did was they turned a stubborn shoulder to people around them who were in need. But God says, in doing that, you turned your shoulder to me. So, closest thing to you people listen to this now. Ready? Everybody in here is tempted by this. If we come to a religious gathering on a regular basis, we're all tempted by this. We've all done this to some extent. Some of you are just better at it than some of us. And that is that you're really, really deeply committed to a religious understanding, but you kind of don't like people, especially terrible, sinful people. And so you turn a stubborn shoulder. Now, let me ex- help you examine if you're falling into this. It's not for me to condemn you. It's for me to help you. The way you can tell if you're falling into this is if you're bothered all the time by others and what they're doing wrong. And you just turn a stubborn shoulder to them. Which, if Jesus did to you, and the distance between you and Jesus is a lot further than the t- distance between you and those people that you are judging... If Jesus turned a stubborn shoulder to you, where would you be? God says you turned a stubborn shoulder. All religious and disappointed, perhaps, but not loving people. It continues in verse 12. He says you made your heart, they made, this is the generations before, they made their hearts diamond hard, or verse 14. And so that pleasant land was made desolate. That's how they got to the wasteland because they had forgotten to care for people as God called them to care for people. And they turned to worship gods that they made with their own hands instead of worshiping the true God. Idolatry and forgetting to care for others. Idolatry and a failure to love. 
And then in chapter 8, there's a turning. And it's good if you can read scripture to, to try to take a step back. Sometimes it's easier if you've been in school or you, you like to, to, to hold ideas and concepts. But here, there is this description of how the people had turned away from God decades before. And then there is this turning. Things are about to get better, even though it hasn't worked out that way yet. The turning is in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 3. God says, look, that's what you, you people did and the people before you. But I'm going to do a new thing. But the activity in chapter 8 is God's activity. In other words, the newness, the salvation, the rebuilding, the hope comes from God, not from the people just figuring out their lives. God says, chapter 8, verse 3, I have returned. Returned to what? Returned to this desolate place. And I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And the city will no longer be a city of injustice, Because the accusation earlier was that they hadn't showed mercy and kindness to one another. They hadn't rendered true judgments. That's verse 9 of chapter 7. They were even devising ways to be against other people instead of for them. But the city now will be a city of justice and mercy. This is God's work and God's doing. And then a beautiful picture that is good for some of us here this morning. Um, Well, for all of us. But it just is turning something that we wouldn't necessarily think of as a great thing into a good thing. Chapter 4 of verse 8, you get this picture of, we'll leave it there, you get this picture of God saying, you know what it's going to be like in the city when I return and I bless the people? Old men and old women will sit in the streets with staff in hand. Does that sound like a picture of blessing to you? I love this picture because he doesn't say that people won't grow old which is what you know, our stupid culture tries to do. Tries to, we try to say growing old is somehow a curse. God says, you know what? Even, turn, even growing old will be a blessing. But he doesn't deny the fact that it's hard for them to walk. They've got a staff in their hand. And the way that we picture this today, because we don't really use the, the staff like that anymore, some people have a walking stick, but most people, and some people in this congregation, some people are using them as seats right now, thanks be to God, have what's called a walker, right? Is that the right name? Is there a better name for it? Is it a walker? Okay, thanks. We're going to use that term. Thank you very much. So God says, you're going to sit in the town square, walker in hand. And that's a blessing. Because there's no danger or threat. And though you are growing old, you are aware of the presence and promise of God. And there's other people in the town square too. Children. So, you know, I guess the old people with the walkers in hand, they actually like kids. And the kids are playing in the street. And God says, that's what it's going to be like. And Eugene Peterson, in his, his paraphrase, the message, I like the way he puts it, it's on the screen. He says, you know what, it's going to be a good city to grow old in, and it's going to be a good city to grow up in, because God's present there. I don't look forward to having a walker. I can imagine that some of the people who have a walker, you know, can, can think back to never having thought they would. But I tell you what, I long for the day that I could remember if I do have that walker that I know that even now God is blessing me. It's a simple, beautiful life. The streets filled with children, boys and girls playing, and joy in being with one another. So that's the vision. 
the end of chapter 9 that George read for us, there's, so we've got the older people and the kids. The end of chapter 9 includes like, um, there was no such thing as adolescence then. We've invented that. And it's just because, you know, nobody can afford to live anymore and take care of themselves. And so we got to go like 19 as an adult, but really an adult is like 35 or something. And the young men and young women are even brought in in chapter 9. It says they'll be delightful and lovely. It's a beautiful picture of just this whole community. In chapter, well, then there's a faith question. Now I'm going to ask you a faith question that is important in a sermon. When this happens, and I don't always identify it as such, but when the minister, you look for this, when the minister or the preacher is asking the question that you need to ask. And here it is. Verses 6 and 7. For you listen, hear this, and take up this question then and now. God asks the people after he gives them the vision. In chapter 8, so you need your Bibles if you're looking for this. It's not in the scripture reading. God asks the question in verses 6 and 7. The picture that I'm giving of life and blessing and salvation, here's God's second question to them. Is it too marvelous? Not a great question. In other words, do you really believe that this could happen? Because right now you're in exile. And I'm telling you about a city of peace and beauty. And he asked them, do you think it's too marvelous for you? You can't figure out how you could get this to happen? Well, here's the question you really need to ask. Do you think it's too marvelous for me? This is why I say it's a faith question for you. Because you're right in that spot so often in your life. Is it too much for you to consider? Wherever you are in life, because this doesn't stop for us. Is it too much to consider that your life would be blessed, would be abundant, would be fruitful, would be joyous? Ever and again, you come up against this question. They were asking it then. God actually anticipated it before they voiced it. He's so loving and caring and wonderful, this God we have, that before they say, I don't know about this vision, God lovingly says, look, Is this too marvelous for you? Is it too marvelous for me? He asks it on their behalf. And he shows that he is with them in that asking. He knows that they have this question or will. That it will be a struggle for them. And I'm saying to you this morning. That he knows that you as well struggle with believing. That you could have a life of strength and joy and blessing and freedom in Jesus Christ. I put before you this morning, do you think that it's too marvelous for him? Abundant life. Verse 13 of chapter 8. He says, because this is where you've been. You've been a byword among the people. Like everybody who lives around you has kind of thought, well, you know, that church kind of a nothing place, I guess. Doesn't really seem to have much of an impact. In fact, you know, those people seem kind of miserable all the time. I'm not saying in this church, but some people can think that. Like, what's the use of that? It was even much worse back then, so that it, it seemed to the people around that God's people were cursed. That's what the language means. You've been a byword. Nobody's going like, I sure wish I was with them. Right? And God says, you who have been a byword will be a blessing to those around you. This is, again, an evangelical verse. 
And then he says this great pastoral thing at the end of chapter 8, at this part of chapter 8. He says, don't be afraid, fear not, let your hands be strong. I don't know if you've had many times in your life where you feel strong. Sometimes it can be because you have good, a good exercise regime and you've got a good diet and you're actually, you know, reading scripture in the morning and praying and learning to trust in God. And, you, and all of a sudden you get to a day, and I hope you've had this, I've had this, and, and you think, I kind of feel pretty strong right now. God says, fear not, let your hands be strong. For you see the goodness of God that he has life for you, you don't need to be afraid. Without getting too much into this and getting too accusatory and hollering at other churches, which I am sometimes want to do, I find it curious that to many people in the world, it would look like Christians are the most afraid of all people. Afraid of the world, afraid of all these terrible things. If all we got to protect, protect, protect. This is, a, this is a death knell to evangelism. Even some, what's curious is that some packed places are selling fear. And it's kind of how you can build a big, a big gathering because, you know, getting a bunch of people who are afraid together isn't, isn't that hard. Particularly if you can identify a common enemy outside of yourselves, right? This is why we need to be afraid. When God promises you blessing and salvation and life, and we believe ultimate and abundant life in Christ, you do not need to be afraid. What can stand against you? Death? Will that swallow you up? Failure? Financial ruin? Health? Hear this in Christ. Don't be afraid. And if we could get a group of people who just weren't afraid, we wouldn't have to wonder about evangelism anymore. We try all all other kinds of ways to to attract people to the gospel, but we still so often are just riddled with fear. I'm not accusing you in this. I'm inviting you to know that God says to us, you don't need to be afraid. And when you encounter someone who has seemingly overcome that fear, it's just this most beautiful thing. I was with a friend this week. I'll tell you his story some other time, I guess. But he's from St. Andrew St. Stephen's. I'm looking at Bart right here because we share, even though we were never there together. That's a bit in our backgrounds, both of us. You know Henry? I didn't ask Henry if I could tell this story to you. I'll tell you in detail another time, but I don't care that I didn't ask because it's good. Um, Henry's been an elder at St. Andrew St. Stephen's for 54 years. He has a deep and abiding faith in Jesus Christ, and he found out not too long ago that he's only got a few months to live. You know, and when it's not a long weekend, and I really want to use the story because it's really good, I'll put in more details and tell you the whole deal. But uh, I found out, and so I visited Henry this week, and I had one of the best meetings I've ever had with anybody. And I love all of you, and I have wonderful meetings with you. But here's why. Because Henry, though he is facing death, he's been with Leola, his wife, for 66 years. She leads the cantatas. She's like two and a half feet taller. So she's a tiny little lady, but she's powerful. She's taller than that. I'm exaggerating. And we sat in their living room, and Henry just recounted to me God's goodness in his life. A 
said, how can I pray for you? And you know what he didn't want? He didn't want me to pray for his physical healing. He said, if God wants to heal me, that would be great. But I wouldn't mind making it to Christmas. And he said, but God's been with me in my life and blessed me. He will be with me in my death and bless me. Not afraid. He doesn't want the pain. Fear not. Let your hands be strong. And God does this beautiful thing in chapter 9. I think it's chapter 9. I might be getting it wrong. He, he names the nations. There is this part where he goes through Damascus and Gaza and Philistia. Uh, and he names the context of the places. I just want to touch in here briefly because this is a key point of struggle for you. Because you come to a room like this and you hear somebody preaching about the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, the abundant life that you can have in God, and you kind of go... Yeah, that feels really good. And then the trouble is, then you've got a doctor's appointment and they're going to tell you that you're not doing very well. Or you're going to walk through those doors and this world is going to kind of wear your faith down a little bit. So God actually names the places because they say, you know, there's this like, I guess it's doubt. It's just this, is it too marvelous for God? But it's this idea that, well, you don't seem to understand what I'm up against here. So God says, names all the places. Yeah, I know the places. Grand Boulevard and... Lynn Valley and Lionsgate Bridge and Second Narrows Traffic and uh, Nepal and all over the world, wherever your life is lived, I'm telling you, I'm going to take care of it all. I'm going to bless you. It's an important reminder. There's much more in that. I don't, I'm not doing it justice. But it's a good reminder for us to know that God knows the context of our lives And then finally we get to the heart of it all. The coming king and the ruptured sky. Chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. When God comes to save the people, there is lightning and trumpet sounds and whirlwinds, verses 14 and 15. But look earlier in the book at the coming of the king, the one who occasions the lightning and the sky breaking in two. Listen to it. It's just so beautiful and so tender and powerful. Rejoice! Rejoice! Here's the heart of how God is going to care for His people. Rejoice! Rejoice! Your King is coming. Righteous! Okay, that's good. Having salvation! Fantastic. Here comes the next word. Not very good in church. Humble. You mean He's not just going to wipe out all the people I can't stand? humble, and riding on a donkey. This is our Christian reference in this book to the triumphal entry. Jesus entering Jerusalem before what? Before he took care of everybody? Set things right? Finally got onto your side and took out those people that are such a bother to you? Or corrected them? Or shook his finger at them? Told them how they needed to straighten up? You know, thank goodness, finally a leader who tells people what they need, what they have to hear. What did Jesus come to Jerusalem to do? To give his life. They spread out their coats and cut down palms for him and his donkey to walk upon. But the world can't find what it thinks it wants on the back of an ass's foal. So I guess you had to get sold. He was coming to give his life, and we turn away from this. And I've got to tell you, 
And I know it's just it's in me and some of the stuff you've got to put up with me a little bit because right now I'm the minister here and there you go. But I'm getting tired of Gospels that I call pseudo-Gospels. Gospels that are focused on moral reform first. Gospels that are human constructions and endeavors and then Jesus Christ is serving a purpose rather than being the center. Gospels that look for victory against the world as if this is what Jesus would have, that he has come to win our battle for us against some other group of people, which is crazy if you think about how he loves you. If he loves you, then who is he going to be against? We turn away from this central reality of the Christian gospel, which is that... No, what, so next time you turn on the news and you shake your head and you think, oh, this is a terrible world, I want you to remember one thing. What did Jesus come to do? He came to, gave his, to give his life for that world. You should be compelled to love more at that. To come closer to these... Whatever it is that's upsetting you, whatever person... As if to emphasize that, look at what's next. Because we believe this coming king is Jesus Christ. Look what's next. There will be no more war. What kind of victorious king promises no more war? Except a big war first. I'm going to come and I'm going to just wipe everybody out that's against us and then, and then our side wins. But this promises that he's humble on a donkey. There will be no more war. He will offer peace to the nations. He's a king like no other king has ever been or will ever be. The giving of his life for the life of the world, the giving of his life for the love of the world, he shows us another way. Jesus Christ himself becomes the way. So we have God's question. Are you doing this for me? And then you have the turning that God says, I'm going to dwell with you. I'll do the renewing. And then you have a faith question. Is it too marvelous that God would bless us in such a way? And then you have the promise. And then you have the gospel that there is the coming king. This is a gospel that's big enough for the whole world. The world is not saved by us doing good, though doing good is good. The world is not saved by us telling others what's wrong with them. The world is not saved by us lamenting what once was, though what once was can be fantastic. The world is saved by Jesus Christ and his love and sacrifice. Still, right now, be at peace. Peace to the nations. Note, though, there is a refining, chapter 13, verse 9. Now I can get all pastory and religious and judgy on you because there's a refining. Oh, thanks be to God. Someone's going to feel a little bit upset. Chapter 13, verse 9. I'll put them, his people, I'll put them into the fire and refine them as one refined silver. It's important for you and me and all of us to remember that this refining is a necessary part of the spiritual life. The question, a question I leave before you this morning is where can you see that you need that refining? Where, has, where have you turned away from faith? Where have you been spiritually lazy? Where have you put your appetites first before other people, before God? Your lusts, your comfort, your pleasure. Where have you treated other people as if they were accessories or furniture in your life? 
Each of us needs refining, but now the promise in the end. The promise is the gospel. Here's the declaration. I've got it. I'll read it for you. Oh, it's in there. Here's what God's ultimate promise is in the gospel, and we believe in the coming King Jesus Christ. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I'll be with them. And I will say, can you imagine God saying this to you? A God of love and compassion and forgiveness and salvation. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. It's a declaration of faith, trust in Jesus Christ. The ability to say, I am a Christian. I have put my faith in him. And I'm telling you that there is fullness of life in Jesus Christ. I am with people who say there's not fullness of life in empty religion. Of course not. It's killer. And if you discover, like, killer bad religion in churches, don't pat yourself on the back. It's easy to find. Fullness of life is in Jesus Christ. You don't need to be afraid when you truly put your faith and trust in him. You can even welcome the stages of life. You can live in harmony with other people. And you can know God's hope as much as it's up to you, you can. And you can know God's hope for the whole world. You can be grateful for each day. This is the day that the Lord has made. And I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Knowing that you, I, we are not the center, but that's the gift. And God is good. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We're going to take communion at this time. It's a good uh, movement out of this consideration to what Jesus Christ has done for us. We take the bread and break it, and we say, this is the body of Jesus Christ given for you. We take the cup and we hand it one to another. We say, and you can say this out loud or not, or we're just passing it along so you might not have time, but that we say, this is the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. You are welcome to receive. In our church, we say you're welcome to receive if you know Jesus Christ or you would like to. This is a table of inclusion, not exclusion. But you don't have to receive. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no lesser person here. You can simply let the bread and the cup pass. Let me pray for the communion. So now, Lord Jesus, we come to the time where we mark the salvation that we have in you by the sacrifice that you took up on our behalf. That you came and gave your life that we would know the strong, abiding, comforting, eternal love of God, our Father, for us and for this whole world. And we have responded to that love by saying, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, I put my trust in you. So bless this bread and this cup as we take it, that we would truly reflect on what you've done for us. And that as we go from this place, we would know your love for this world. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.